I get asked on the walks a lot, should I, should I give money to people when they ask me? And the answer I, I, I give is, do you know the person's name? Do you know anything about the person? Um, get to know them a bit before you give them money. Buy them a meal. Ask them what they would like. Would you like me to buy you something to eat? Maybe even share that meal with them if it's appropriate yeah, or share possible. share meal with them. Hello and welcome to Stories by the Wayside, a podcast by Wayside Chapel. My name is John Owen and I've been the pastor and CEO of Wayside Chapel since 2018, but I've spent my life creating a community with no us and them. This podcast is a tribute to love and belonging, loneliness and loss, and the rich kaleidoscope of chaos that comes when life is lived from the gutter up. Every episode I invite friends from the wayside for honest, big-hearted conversations about the crisis of disconnection in these overwhelming times. Our guest today has been involved with Wayside for a very long time. Since he found himself on the streets as a boy of 12, already dependent on alcohol, trying to numb the pain of a traumatic childhood. He met Reverend Graham Long while he was selling The Big Issue, and Graham's commitment to buying the magazine from him week after week led him to the wayside. At first he was a visitor, and now he's a friend. Over the last 30 years, our guest has often been a beacon of light in the cross, keeping the darkness at bay. He can tell everyone who comes through our doors that he knows what it's like, though he often doesn't. He also knows what it's like to be ignored by people because you're homeless or judged because you're lost in addiction, because he's lived it. He has witnessed firsthand the underbelly of the cross, organised crime, corrupt police and rampant drug use. He has also seen acts of human kindness that have prevailed against the odds. I'm privileged to have time with him in the studio today. How old were you when you had your first memories of King's Cross? I was 12, 12 years old. Mm. What year would this, what decade are we in? Uh, the early 80s. What, what, what stands out in, in your first impressions and memories of the cross? What was it like? Flashing lights or? Bright lights. Always somebody uh, prepared to try and con you out of whatever you might have had or um, wanted to work with you to get something of somebody else's, con someone out of something. Twelve years old, you, you, um, how many peop- How many kids would have been around the cross around your age back then? Uh, there were quite a few. And what sorts of things would happen for 12-year-olds back in those days? The big thing we used to look forward to was finding somebody who would buy us alcohol. <laughs> uh, it was pretty hard at 12 to get grog, but it was possible. There were people that would... You know, help help us out. Which store was the uh, most notorious for selling booze to a twelve-year-old back in the eighties? Uh, the, the Piccadilly Hotel was pretty good. Is that the one on Bayswater Road? That's on Victoria Street. It's not open anymore. Mm-hmm. Well done in naming a place that's closed down now. <laughs> what brought you to the cross at twelve? Uh, I was running away from a terrible, terrible situation in my family home, and then. Did you have a place? Were you living in a house or a flat or an apartment or what sorts of living arrangements did you have over the next few years of those early I, days? I camped around different parks and then I found a park that I really liked in Elizabeth Bay and I started going there on a regular basis and I was introduced to Wayside. 
someone took me to Wayside for porridge one Saturday morning. And so was that the first you heard of Wayside? Yeah, it was the first time I'd ever heard of Wayside. And, and you'd been, you were it was still about 12, 13 years old at this time? Yeah. 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 And what did you heard about it before you actually went there? Not very much. Um, actually, I, I, I thought I'd be better off staying away because being a kid, I'd heard that uh, the minister's wife used to take interest in, in street kids and try and get them off the street. And and when you say take interest, it wasn't in a sinister way. It was if she saw you as a young person on the street, she would try and immediately Yeah, I was. Get she saw me as a, a person very much at risk yeah. and I was. I, I would never have admitted it back then, but I was very vulnerable. And the first attempt at getting me out of King's Cross was a, a refuge in Five Dock. So you went in there for your porridge. You bumped into the minister's wife, Margaret Knoffs, yeah. at the time. Margaret Knoffs, yeah. And Margaret took you under her wing and... Yeah, took me under, I guess so. Took what were your memories of Margaret Knopf's? Um, just, she was always really warm and kind. I, I remember the kindness more than anything, the kindness from her. And, and I kind of, I, I felt I wanted to be the master of my own destiny, but I wasn't capable of it. Um, At the ripe old age of 13, 14. Yeah. yeah. So she, she got you into a refuge in Five, five Dock. Dock, yeah which happened to be right next door to the Illinois Hotel. Yeah. It failed, failed miserably because I I fell in with the, the old guys in the pub and they hid me in the corner and fed me on middies. And I'd get back to the refuge for dinner and be a mess. Yeah. And after a week they said, we can't have him. They sent me back to Margaret <laughs> and I went back to the park. Yeah. The Illinois Hotel, That well, it, it was a topless barmaid establishment was it back then in the in the eighties? Uh I can't recall. I, the, the the guys you really used to hide me in the corner. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you saw nothing. Not really. Yeah. So you let's go back. You're twelve years old, you've you you're leaving something. You're definitely moving away from something. And uh, then you you enter the cross and yeah you you're in parks and on the street. Can you remember the first night you were on the street? What was that like? How did that feel? I, I was probably terrified. Um, I kept moving all night. Mm. I never, I didn't settle. Um, I'd heard stories and and the war was very active then and there were people that were very interested in getting me up to the wall mm. and I was very interested in staying away from it. Mm. And I managed to stay away from it. Many of the other Young people didn't. Mm. Tell us about the wall uh, for people who might not have heard of the wall in King's Cross. I mean, it's just right now in front of Skeggs, right? One of the most prestigious private schools we've got in our state. What was it back then, though? Uh, it was the wall was uh, the wall of the old Darlinghurst Jail on um, Darlinghurst Road. Oh, was that the wall? So, oh yeah, that was goodness, the wall. All this time, drive, I thought it was down near PJs. Every, every Sunday. Yeah, I thought it was PJs. Yeah, silly me. All this time, um, um, that, now that area you're talking about was where the the um, the transsexual workers used to hang mm. along uh, out in front of Skeggs and around there, around right. those. So tell us about the wall. So the walls on Darlinghurst Road on the, on Dar- the old jail, which is Darlinghurst now the, um, Road. the art centre now. Yep. 
Yeah, and so you'd drive past her and what would you typically see there? Uh, boys and men scantily dressed, young men scantily dressed, um, walking up and down, waiting to be to be picked up. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And and PJ's was a bit further down the hill on William Street, right? And that was It was it wasn't it was the the lane behind William Street. Mm. So um the the girls used to work William Street. Back, mm. And and in a, with a vengeance back then it was it's dead today. Mm. Um it's lost a lot of its character because mm. yeah. mm. I mean you, you were leaving a pretty Difficult domestic situation back at home, but entering the cross in that era must have just blown your mind, expanded your horizons all of a sudden. You're seeing life up full frontal, 360. Well, yeah. Um, I met a a, 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 a trans, uh, transsexual person who kind of took a liking to me and she had this business where she would sell shiny balloons at mm. markets and festivals and and where she would take me with her to sell balloons and and um this person was amazing and i guess i was a little bit besotted with her yeah. and and she knew that and um her partner uh didn't like it very much but tolerated it because I was a kid. Yeah. And another mutual friend of ours who's recently passed away, he tells the story of, of running away at a similar age and ending up in the cross and sleeping down at the park in Elizabeth Bay uh, with the rotunda. And the, he said the first experience of being loved by a mother were the, uh, the ladies that worked the wall there who would come down and fuss over them and make sure they had a hot breakfast or would drag them up to the wayside to get them a blanket and a change of clothes. And he said that was the first experience he had of a mother's beautiful love in his life. I can relate a little bit to that. I, I had a, an addicted mother and an um, alcoholic father. In, in, in his later years, he stopped drinking, um, but my mother never stopped taking pills. Right up till the day she died. You know, from that upbringing, you've grown to be a man who has one of the biggest hearts I've ever met and has compassion and cares for others, probably sometimes to the expense of caring for yourself at times. But where did you experience that love? I think it was the, it was the volunteers at Wayside. It was the ones that remembered my name. Mm. It made all the difference. They just remembered my name. And they thought enough of me to remember my name. Can you remember any of their names? You know what? I can't. Yeah. Um, and it, I mean, Wayside was a different place as well. You know, it was very. Well, different. describe Wayside back in the eighties when you first walked into that place. Cause it's a very different place now. As yeah, well. yeah. It was kind of scary place, really. Um, it wasn't as well managed as it is today. The activities were very different. It was uh, easier to get away with stuff there if you wanted to misbehave. And it was carpeted, I heard. It was carpeted, yeah. It became sticky very quickly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, with the amount of drinks being snuck in and whatever else was happening there. Yeah. yeah. So they had the showers and toilets back then? They had, there was a shower in Hope Lane, mm. which is now the, the closed off gate. So if you wanted to have a shower back in the day, now you just 
get a towel from the front desk and there's a hallway that has showers within it. But what did you have to do back in the day? Well, the volunteer used to walk around to the gate and unlock the gate. So you'd be in your towel? Well, you'd be dressed Mm. and carrying your towel and they would let you through the gate. Um, And that was, that gate was, I, I guess, instrumental in me deciding, making a decision to, that I wanted to change when I saw this young volunteer whose name escapes me had walked from the front desk around to the back gate and I saw fear in her eyes and I saw relief as the gate closed between us. This relief washed over her and I sat in the shower and cried because... uh, you know, I didn't want to be that person that people were frightened of. Um, and it was it was what I'd known at home. And I thought that was how everybody was supposed to behave. I've learned that it's not, you know. They often say that we're transformed in the presence of images, which means, you know, we can't be what we can't see. So the people around us are the ones that teach us new and different ways of how to care for ourselves and care for others and to begin to love. So who are some of the most significant people that have come into your life over its journey? Yeah, so uh, I'd have to say a 12-step person, Mm. uh, Campsy Mick. Mm. Uh, And there's been many stories told about Campsy Mick that he was was, uh, a sleazebag and, and, but I'll tell you, as a, young boy who spent many hours walking with Nick overnight, hundreds of times across the Harbour Bridge. Never once was there any anything that I could say was was wrong. He only he cared he just cared about me. Mm. You know? And I've been thinking about him recently because in nineteen eighty six, Campsy Mick took me to see that Kirk Douglas Burt Lancaster movie, Tough Guys. And <laughs> And on the social media, a clip from that movie came up and I just thought of Mick and sitting in that movie theatre with him, watching that movie and and, uh, laughing at at, because that was a funny movie. I I have a a similar memory uh, as a young guy. Not, not, you know, I I never went to movies with my dad. He was always too busy. But, you know, there was a a mentor that I had and I would have been 14 or 15 and he took me to a movie, just me and him, I just remember sitting in the movie, not even really watching the movie, just thinking, how beautiful is this that I'm important enough that someone wants to spend some time with me one-on-one? Yeah, and Mick spent hours, hours and hours one-on-one with me on the way to AA meetings to, because the one thing that became apparent was that above all else I needed to stop drinking. Yeah, and I mean, you're talking in the mid-80s, so you're still only 15, 16 years old. So yeah. booze became Te- a problem for you pretty quick. Teenager. What age were you when you first had a drink? And uh, I was 11. 11. I was a teenage alcoholic, yeah. became alcoholic fairly quickly. Mm. Um, and I kind of realised I had a problem as I was going to school and I discovered in the garbage bin next to the bus stop a half-finished flagon of port mm. that somebody had hidden it in the bin or thrown it in the bin because they didn't want to finish it. And so I finished it and mm. got expelled from school that day. Yeah. 
it's, it's cost you a bit. Yeah, I remember where else would someone with a problem with alcohol work other than cleaning a pub at night? You told me once that you uh, were cleaning a pub and then what happened next? I'd been sober for I think about close to a year and I had this cleaning contract. It was a restaurant, a five-star restaurant in Birdsgrove and I saw a bottle of Maker's Mark and I thought, oh, I wonder what that tastes like. I haven't tried that one. And at 11.30 when the owners of the restaurant came in to open up and I was asleep under the bar with an empty bottle of Maker's Mark next to me and none of the restaurant had been cleaned, Um, that kind of grueled it for the cleaning for me after that. That was the uh, beginning and the end of the cleaning career all in, all yeah. in one year. Yeah. It would have been quite a lucrative contract to, to sell on to somebody. Now, in front of the beautiful Elizabeth Bay House is a tiny little park that has a beautiful pond in there that has some lovely goldfish that uh, well loved and well tended and well cared for. It, all, it also has some park benches and you found yourself living there. Yeah, I used to sleep underneath one of the benches there and I... I always say that people know that I slept underneath the bench uh, for my safety because often uh, if somebody spotted someone who was homeless or a group of people, they would want to give you a kicking, you know. Even down at Elizabeth Bay Park of a night time? Well, that's why I slept under the bench so that it just couldn't happen. They would hurt their shins if they tried to kick me under that bench. But, you know, I saw a, a gentleman who was a metho drinker who slept rough and I saw a bunch of youth set him on fire one night. Mm. You know, and he, he lived in the Matthew Talbot when I first came back to Wayside uh, 16 years ago mm. and started hanging with Graham. What are your first memories of Graham? Yeah, a, a, a man who was very busy and he was concerned concerned about the wayside and how to keep it going because, you know, it was on its last legs, you know. You could literally smell the carpet from Maclay Street and it it would stick, your feet would stick to the floor when you walked in. And, you know, whilst Ted Noss was the founder of Wayside, you know, Graham Long saved it effectively. The doors would have closed if it wasn't for him and his hard work through that time and the people he put around him. And he also not only rebuilt it but, you know, changed it significantly. What what changes did he bring in for the better that you remember? Oh, there, there was a, a, a solid opening and closing time. Mm. So, you know, what, 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 it could still be open at 2 o'clock in the morning some, <laughs> you know, before Graham some, sometimes. You know, if there was a good movie on hey, and the volunteers were up for it, the place could stay open. And Graham put structure in place and um, and, and programs, things for us to do. Mm. You know, the art group, the art group was, I used to love just sitting at that table painting on a Saturday afternoon with the volunteers who used to come in and paint with us, you know. And one of my paintings was up on the wall and it ended up in the first book. Yeah. My photo didn't end up in there, but my painting did. No, no, no. You, your photo cracked it for the second book, didn't it? No. No. So you're you're like me. No photo evidence of, of us being involved with Wayside. Maybe it's for the best so the police can't track us down <laughs> later. It's uh, 
Now, how long do you think you've spent on the streets? How many years? I've had probably 17 years all up on the street mm. uh, and the longest period being 10 years mm. uh, consecutively. So you've – you've um, but through that time you've also had uh, a, a, a job with Wayside. So with that's had many incarnations and roles. What, what sorts of things have you done? Okay, I started – at Wayside, uh, making coffee for people on Sundays. Mm. And Toby's estate donated a fantastic cappuccino machine and then they trained me to use this cappuccino machine. And I remember going down to do the training with another member of the congregation. Simon. Uh, no, it was Kerry Ann. Oh, Kerry Ann. And Kerry Ann doesn't drink coffee, so <laughs> every cup of coffee Terry Ann says, Carrie Ann made, can you taste this for me? And I'd been tasting my own. So by the end of the day, I was like zing. You were high on your own yeah. supply. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I started making coffee on the Sunday. I think Uniting Church stumped up the funds for 12 months mm. to pay me to, to make coffees. So every a, every morning you'd, for a couple of hours you'd be pumping out the coffees? Yeah. After after church we used to make mm. – I used to make coffees for people. It was by donation. So And then um, – uh, Wendy uh, one day said, I think we need to start charging people for these coffees. And and I kept very meticulous records of donations and how many coffees I've made each week. I said, well, can I just calculate how much we've got per cup? And it was two forty nine because she wanted to charge two fifty for a cup of coffee. <laughs> so it kind of, oh, we don't need to worry about charging. You're getting the, what we were asking anyway. <laughs> good, good, good. And then from the, from the barista days... If. Yeah. Um, there was one Bible study which uh, Graham, I think he wanted to run it from his house. Mm. And I had been a- at another church to a home Bible study, which the minister had arranged, and the homeowner objected to me going to the Bible study mm. because of my addiction problems and was was convinced that I was going to steal something. Um from their from their home, which wasn't Graham. Right? It wasn't Graham. No, Graham was going to start a home Bible study, and when I told him this story, he said, "Well, we'll, we'll just have it at Wayside." Mm. So we had a the Bible study in a space at way in the boardroom at Wayside. Mm. I hadn't been house for very long, but I baked a sticky date pudding to mm. take to the Bible study, and the culinary manager got wind of it mm. uh, and asked me in to do some baking one day and. I made some muffins and a cake and mm. and uh, then got asked to be the baker. I think I did that for the next 18 months. Yeah. Yeah. And then we built a community education team which uh, would get groups that were visiting Wayside and we'd get someone to teach them about Wayside but also do that through their own story and that evolved into Wayside Walks. Yeah. Tell us about Wayside Walks. What are they? Uh, wayside walks are, a, are just a walk around the Kings Cross Elizabeth Bay area. Um, to and they still run to this day. Good. And so what can someone expect if they sign up to attend one of your walks? They, um, just two hours of walking and talking. I'll talk about my addiction, addiction to heroin, addiction to marijuana. I'll talk about my mental illness, which was really what I was trying to treat with my addiction. Uh, I'll talk about struggling 
in and out of recovery. I'll talk about the service, the other services that work alongside Wayside mm. in the King's Cross area. So it's a very personal history. Very personal history, mm. yes. I can recommend it to anyone who uh, is curious about it. It is uh, one of the most precious moments of a couple of hours that you will have walking with this gentleman through the streets of King's Cross, regardless of what they are now and today, it uh, which presents its own unique challenges to people, telling that story and the history of the cross through your own lens and your personal experience is uh, one of the most heart-rending and compassion-creating opportunities that are out there, so I encourage you all to do it. Just living through the 80s in the cross with the corruption. and So you experienced some of the police corruption, didn't you? Oh, a little bit of it, yeah. How, how, how did that play out for you probably as a 15 to 20-year-old kind of young guy? What were you doing that made you not, get noticed by the cops? Um, I turned up with a, a taxi full of items that I collected. <laughs> um from various places. I love that choice of language. <laughs> and uh, I didn't have the right ID for Happy Hockers. Mm. At that time, Happy Hockers were in Roslyn Street mm. and just near the police station. And I said to the cab driver, oh, I haven't got the right ID, mate. Like, And the cab driver drove me straight to the back of King's Cross Police. And the, the, the sergeant who used to licence Happy Hockers walked around to Happy Hockers with me and told them that I was who I said I was. So he approved the the sale with that without the correct ID. Did, did you? What name did you give? Oh, my right name, my oh, real you name. You right name. Yeah. Right. And they they then um, handed the money to uh, the sergeant, and he gave the taxi driver his fare, gave me ten bucks, and kept the rest. <laughs> so I think it was about two hundred bucks he ended up with, and. The taxi ended up with 40 and I ended up with 10. You ended up with 10 and not, oh, not being arrested. With, yeah, not being arrested, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was, it, they, they were very different days back then and uh, <sighs> the uh, corruption has been uh, well rooted out and addressed through uh, some of those royal commissions back then. During the walk you often tell a powerful story about a moment that you had on the bridge. Which, would you like to share it with yeah. Um, living through all this, I, and with my mental illness and uh, uh, deep depression, I was often suicidal and uh, was lingering on the, the footbridge over the Eastern Distributor one day. And, and I think about it today and I shudder uh, somebody who drives because uh, I was going to jump in front of a truck and I, and I think of the driver who would have had to live with that. Um, but the kindness of a stranger. Uh, and so you're standing on the bridge? Standing on the bridge. Literally on Yeah, with my back the to the uh, westbound traffic. So I was facing west and waiting for the rumble of a truck and a, a young girl walked up and asked me if I was okay. And in a moment of clarity, I said, no, I'm not. And she then walked with me to the hospital, St Vincent's, up through Woomera Avenue and sat with me until I got to see the psychiatrist 
who then made a phone call. So it was grand final weekend, 2007. Uh-huh. And uh, so a long weekend. The psychiatrist called Dr Alex Wodak, who then was the head of drug and alcohol at St Vincent's, and he approved my script for methadone over the phone. So unheard of. First and just about only person that's had a methadone prescription issued over the phone in New South Wales. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And on the Sunday, that was a Saturday, on the Sunday of that long weekend, Alex Wadak came into the hospital mm-hmm. um, to do the paperwork for the, for the methadone um, to get legal with it all. It was all being prescribed by the nurses and the doctors, so nothing nothing was in my hands. It's hard to tell the story of King's Cross without talking about Dr Alex Wodak. He also was pivotal in creating the safety injecting room that was established initially at Wayside and then has now become the uh, MSIC, the – what does MSIC stand for again? Medically Supervised Injecting Centre. Medically Supervised Injecting Centre. Yeah, he was uh, in an act of civil disobedience. Ray Richmond opened the doors because he was sick of picking up dead bodies off the street in the height of the heroin crisis and instead opened some rooms, the tolerance room it was called at the time and it was only open for about five days, wasn't it? And uh, every night he got arrested yeah. <laughs> and every day he said, I'm going to keep coming back and opening it up and so that people who were addicted to heroin didn't as much as possible, run the risk of overdosing and, and dying. There was a, a real response that uh, the Premier then, Bob Carr, said, uh, if you promise to close down the room, I'll put it front and centre on the agenda for the drug summit that we have coming up. And for many, many years, until only very recently, New South Wales, via an act of parliament, was the only medically supervised injecting centre in the whole of the Southern Hemisphere. Thankfully, another one's opened up since in, in Richmond yeah. in those days, but Dr Wadak was very pivotal. You know, they, he's done some big, great things, but probably none greater than that small act of kindness to you on that grand yeah. final weekend of 2007. How did... Saved my life. Yeah. 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 Um, I was on the methadone for four years mm. uh, at the Rankin Court Clinic in, when it was in Victoria Street. It's now a part of St Vincent's Hospital. We used to be standalone from the hospital. There's something so powerful and beautiful about the story you just shared, brother, and it goes through the kindness of a stranger whose face you cannot recall and you don't remember. I can, I can see her brown hair. I, I can't. I couldn't tell you what colour eyes she had. Oh, she was very kind. I think angels and do appear sometimes. She wasn't sometimes. frightened. Mm. It was the, one of the strange times where this person was very secure in herself and wasn't wasn't frightened. Mm. She she felt safe. And to have her visit you at that moment, to ask that question, and to have you respond as well. Yeah, I don't think I am. Admit that I was broken. Mm. Yeah, it's a powerful response. There's a call, and then there's a response, and. The reaction that occurs next can only happen as a result of those two things pairing with each other, to going to the hospital, to sitting with you. It would have been a few hours, I assume. It always is a few hours. Gently beside you and then to have a doctor on a public holiday grand final weekend in New South Wales 
go out of his way. There's mm. just angel upon miracle upon grace that occurs in that moment. The the staff member at Gorman House, who was one of Alex Wadek, was their boss, um, said to me after he left that um, I've worked here for five years and I've never met the man and he comes in to meet you. Come, what impact does that have on, on you? Uh, I, I felt like I was... I'm, I'm, I was important. Yeah. My life was important. I was nothing. I, I had nothing. I was incapable of working. I was pretty incapable of love. I swore all the time. You know, I was gruffy and dirty and, you know, I'd have a shower twice a week at Wayside whether I needed it or not. <laughs> <laughs> what I have told you is it's full it. of uh, horrendous jokes as well that I absolutely adore. <laughs> And from that, you, you've met the king. Yeah, I did meet the king. Yeah. Well, it sounds like it was more memorable for him than it was for you. 2014 uh, at the Governor's Garden Party in at Government House in Sydney, along with uh, uh, Graham Long and Rob Holt. Look, you've experienced the highs and lows of life and uh, just like to hear some of your thoughts and your wisdom on what does it take to turn around a life. What have you learnt from the experiences of being about as low as it can get for someone at times? Uh, the, uh, the the depth I had to go down to, I've learned that um, it's possible to go to the other extreme and be as high. And I, I don't mean, you know, in a drug kind of way, but... Uh, in a love kind of way. So yesterday, an amazing day, and some of my closest friends were having a crisis. Mm. And one of our beautiful congregation people lost his sister. And I was just able to stand for a few minutes and say, I'll be with you tomorrow. And then give the man a hug Mm. and just hold him for a minute. You have so much compassion. And love and joy. I see joy in your eyes when you can stand and be there for people at the worst moments of their life and existence and yet you are there as a loving, caring, quite vulnerable presence holding them. And I see you often walk away saying, what a joy and what a privilege that is. Where where does that come from me? I, I don't always walk away feeling <laughs> joyful. Sometimes I walk away feeling quite hurt because I, I, I do, I am vulnerable and that's important to allow myself that vulnerability. Um, it's precious, really is. I was incapable of caring about anything except where that next shop was coming from. The day there was a tradesman and I'm not proud of this, um, I'm not ashamed of it either, there was a tradesman working in a restaurant and he left his toolbox open on the back of his truck. And I took some power tools. And, and by this stage, I was fairly well known at Happy Ockers. And uh, I flogged this stuff at Happy Ockers. And I walked back down past where I'd taken the tools from. Mm-hmm. And the guy was on the phone to his insurance company. He just hung up as I walked past. And he said, Son, 
junkie has stolen all my tools, mate. And I told him, go up to Haiti Hawkers and if they've got them up there, they've got to tell you they've got them and you'll get them back. And I'd used my right ID so it would have come back and it would have caught up with me eventually. Mm. But he never did. He didn't do it. Mm. And I wondered sometimes if, if it's at all possible for me to make amends to that man. Yeah. Um, and often that's what drives me in helping others is because I can't make amends to that mm. man, so maybe I can help somebody else to make up for it. So instead of running away from the person who you once were, it's more about never forgetting about that person that you once were, but making that as a source of positivity and generativity in your day-to-day living. I do I do try and make it a positive thing, yeah. Mm. Well, you, you do, you, you're succeeding. And I'm no, I'm no saint. I, I, I do, I still do things that, you probably wouldn't like. <laughs> um, well, there's, there's no one perfect in this world, mate. No. So. What I've also learned is it's important to just keep telling the truth, mm. keep telling on myself, mm. you know, keep telling on myself because yeah. once I start lying to myself, yeah, I'll start lying to other people. Yeah, that's, that is sage wisdom right there. Camp's unique. <laughs> he, he, was, he was a saint, that man, you know, mm. and when he... Retired from the waterboard, 35 years on the waterboard. He retires and some uh, kind, uh, for say, I'm being facetious, 12-stepper who was a financial advisor mm. took his 35 years of super mm. and took off with it. You know, I think the difference between saints and sinners, whatever that ever means, is a, uh, a saint is someone who's a sinner who's able to tell the truth to themselves about themselves, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You, you've been around long enough at Wayside, you would have met a young Chantel, hasn't she, who's been there 40 years. Yeah. Um, yeah we've Tell us about her. Chantel was always, Chantel was serving the porridge up, yeah? And <laughs> oh, right. So she, she was yeah. keen to make sure that I got enough porridge because I was a skinny kid. I'm not the, I wasn't the lump of a man I am today. There was also a group. An Indian group that used to come every now and then. That's right, once a fortnight. And provide us. Yes. 20 years before my time, but I hear about how I should get them back. <laughs> I think they've yeah. all aged out now. Hey, um, when you're on the street and people walk past, what's what's something that we can all do that can make a difference? I get asked on the walks a lot, should I, should I give money to people when they ask me? And mm. the answer I, I, I give is, do you know the person's name? Do you know anything about the person? Um, get to know them a bit before you give them money. Buy them a meal. Ask them what they would like. Would you like me to buy you something to eat? Maybe even share that meal with them if it's appropriate yeah, or possible. Yeah, share that meal with them. I, I remember hearing a story from a from a homeless guy uh, of a girl who used to buy him a Happy Meal every day and one day after weeks and weeks of eating Happy Meals, he gave it back to her and said, oh, Never once have you asked me what I like a salad sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I've heard her tell that story and she kind of names that as one of her most significant life moments where she realised it was, it was more about her uh, than it was about anything else and it was one of those turning points for her okay. in her life. Yeah. Hmm. So, yeah, but I love that story. Um, yeah. I know we've heard it through your story but, you know, I just want to hear it from you. What... What difference can small acts of kindness and love make in a person's life? I, I was used to 
people, uh, ladies, they walk past me on the street and they grip hold of their handbags or cross over the street if they saw me. I once heard a comedian say that uh, the thing that offended him most about that was they're not that strong (laughs) 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 compared to what he was. Yeah. Yeah. And the acts of kindness, uh, you still see the people gripping on the handbag, but I'm able to focus on something else because someone's done something nice for me. So if you want to be like that, that's fine. I've never stolen a handbag in my life. I wouldn't I wouldn't do it. Most of the time I fed my addiction through through showing the issue or casual work if I could do it. In in the end I, I wasn't capable of going to work. You know. Uh I could probably I could probably talk my way into a job. I was pretty good at that, <laughs> yeah. but I wasn't capable of turning up. Well, you had hundreds of jobs, haven't you, over your lifespan? Yeah. And, you know, a heroin-addicted tree lopper, you know, <laughs> who would turn up to work in withdrawals, you know, and you... I know I'm laughing, but... <laughs> climbing up a tree with a chainsaw, you know, with diarrhoea. <laughs> And your boss underneath you're looking up. So it's just, it's just sap, right? <laughs> the boss would recognise quickly that I was sick. He would call me down the tree, you know, what do you need? A hundred bucks in the truck for half an hour. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be back right as rain. You might not have a truck. And I would work like a trooper. Mm. Any final thoughts or, or some of your wisdom? Is you're, you've always got something beautiful to share. Oh, I, I don't think I have wisdom. Well, your wisdom comes from not from the university down, but from from pain and suffering upwards, which no one would have ever wished for you. It's important to, uh, I think, be willing to accept help when it's offered. You know, um, it's easy to become standoffish, and I'm self sufficient, so mm. even though you're a complete mess. Mm. It's an easy thing to do. I don't need anybody and I need everybody. Mm. I mean, that's advice for us all. You know, we unfortunately live in a country where the last thing we do often is call out for help. Yeah. And often that everyone's willing to help. And they said, I wish you'd asked me six months earlier or three months earlier. I still have pretty bad nightmares about my traumatic childhood Mm. and... Last week I woke up screaming mm. and, well, I live in a building and one of my neighbours was concerned mm. and asked, called the police and asked them to come for a welfare check. Mm. So, you know, 4.46 in the morning, the police are knocking on my door, are you all right? <laughs> and then called the mental health right. team and, mm. and they didn't have to come out. They just talked mm. to me for a little while on the mm. phone and then deemed that I was okay and that I wasn't a risk to myself. Yeah. And I knew that already. I went for almost 20 years every day with a thought of self-harm. Yeah. And often many days acting on those thoughts. Mm. You know, and um, I, I have a, a beard and it's because of cigarette burns on my face, mm. you know, from self-harm. Keep it covered up. You're a handsome chap. I wish the girls thought that. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for sharing. Your wisdom and your insight is 
is as powerful as it is precious, mate. And, you know, I, I love that this is two blokes having a chat and we have gone to some of the deepest and darkest places. So I thank you for your openness and, and vulnerability and compassion. I'll always remember something you said to me, which was, if you ever are struggling, lean on my shoulder because I'd much prefer that than it was your casket leaning against my shoulder. I'd rather listen to you for all day than, than listen to your eulogy for 15 minutes. Thanks, brother. Thank you, John, for all that you do for our people, you know, for our visitors, for our volunteers. We, we're building a world where love will win over hate someday, mate. Just like to thank you, my friend, brother, community, educator and all-round legend, Andrew Windsor. Thanks for the chat today. Must be time for a White Ox. (laughs) (laughs) Our guest today has been Andrew Windsor, who is our Wayside Walks tour guide. He's an employee and a former rough sleeper and a brother of mine. Andrew draws on his experiences of homelessness and addiction to provide people with a rare insight into what life is like on the streets. If you ever go on one of his walks, he will point out spots of significance along the way, where he slept and why, other groups that we work with in the area and the moments when he came to know Wayside so well. If you would like to sign up and attend one of his walking tours, you can find the link in our show notes. Thanks for listening to Stories by the Wayside. My name's John Owen. If you'd like to hear more, please subscribe to our Inner Circle for more stories by the Wayside. If you love this show, please give it a five-star review. It helps so much in promoting this, but also share it with a friend. If someone you love who's going through a tough time came to your mind while you were listening, please share it with them. Subscribe to our Inner Circle for more stories from the wayside. We'll add a link in the show notes. This podcast has proudly been made in conjunction with MIK Made.